book of Psalms tonight, Psalm 63. I'm going to journey through the Scriptures, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with the Bibles, and you just wave to them, get their attention, they'll get a Bible into your hands. And we try to cover a little bit of territory on Sunday nights, and a Bible will help you from, from feeling like you're disconnected with what it is that's happening. Much easier to learn and concentrate. I want to make mention while we're turning there, also the chili cook-off is this coming uh, Saturday. Great time of fellowship and good, clean fun, and so that's coming up. Be sure and realize that you can purchase uh, tickets for your supper or you can sign up to meet a need somewhere uh, in the uh, related to the day. Great way to uh, come to fellowship with other people as well. One thing that you might consider, if you have flexibility on Friday during the day for kind of set up uh, then, and would be interested in coming down and helping, then stop at the table afterwards and sign up for that and let us know as well. And that would be a tremendous help if that works for you. So uh, be aware of, of that and uh, also of the Compions sharing with us from Kenya this coming uh, Wednesday evening. We look forward to that report from Kenya of God's power and his work and all these wonderful things that will do a good thing in us as we listen uh, to that testimony. Psalm 63 is, uh, I'm just going to read through the psalm. And what I'd like to do with this psalm a little bit tonight, it addresses a particular subject. And, um, and I'm going to take my time going through it a little bit because I think the subject is so important. I don't think that we're ignorant in it, in this, uh, in this body, but it's good to be reminded of it. David writes, and we're told in the kind of uh, introduction to it, that it was a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And he wrote, O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and a thirsty land where there is no water. And so I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. And thus I will bless you while I live. And I will lift up my hands in your name, and my soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall sing praise to you with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches, because you have been my help. Therefore, in the shadow of your wings, I will rejoice. My soul follows close behind you. Your hand upholds me. But those who seek my life to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him shall glory. But the mouth of those who speak lies will be stopped. Now, in this psalm, we come to another one of those psalms that is just, for whatever reason, has become a favorite of God's people for the last 3,000 years. So, obviously, it speaks, all of them speak to us, all 150 psalms, but some of them meet us in our uh, life experiences a little more frequently than others do, and apparently this one does pretty regularly in all of our lives. It appears that this psalm was born out of a season in David's life that really produced a lot of psalms. Sometimes we go through difficult circumstances 
And you say, what in the world was that all about? And God is usually knocking out quite a few things all at the same time. But sometimes it's to take us deeper in our relationship with Him, deeper in our worship of Him, and to develop worship in our life. And David had an experience in his life which we've seen multiple times in looking at the Psalms where his son by the name of Absalom tried to overthrow him as the king and came about as close to being successful as anyone could except that there was a rather large roadblock in the way called God who <laughs> didn't let it happen. So he had no ch- chance of success really. And so Absalom tried to overthrow his father, also wanted to kill his father, And in one morning, David wakes up in Jerusalem. He's the king of Israel. He's the most powerful man, not only in the nation, but in the whole region. And before the day is out, he is running for his life with his family, uh, with these 600 loyal men that had been loyal to him. And he's fleeing for his life across the Kidron Valley out into the wilderness of uh, Judea. And when you, if you ever go to Israel, we spend a day out in the Judean wilderness, the area of the Dead Sea, and it is a dry place. There are rocks, and then there are rocks, and there are rocks, and there are rocks, and then there's more rocks, and then there's mountains of rocks, and then there's valleys of rocks. There's an occasional uh, shittim tree out there and, and the acacia wood it's also known as and uh, that kind of breaks it up a little bit. But it's a very barren place. And so he finds himself fleeing out uh, into that area. And David was in a very, very difficult circumstance, obviously a life-threatening circumstance. And, uh, but far from allowing that to shake his faith in God, he chose to instead worship the Lord and to draw closer to the Lord and worship. And sometimes that's uh, we make a choice in a difficult trial whether we're going to allow this to set us back in our relationship with the Lord or we say, no, I'm going to lean in closer to God, draw closer to Him, draw on Him like I've never drawn on Him before and, and, uh, and deepen my relationship in a way that wouldn't otherwise happen. And that's always a good decision to make. So sometimes these difficult things are allowed into our lives because of the psalm, because of the worship, because of what happens in our relationship with God as we uh, navigate those kind of seasons with the Lord Himself. And so the psalm provides us with very, very practical glimpse into this thing that's called worship. And this is an important part of the Christian life, and that's why I want to spend a little time on it tonight. The word worship... Uh, it is to ascribe worth to someone or to something. Our English word worship, it comes from an old English word meaning worthship. And so when we worship the Lord, we do so because we recognize that He is worthy of our worship and He's worthy of our praise. In the New Testament, the Greek word that is most often used for worship is proskuneo, and it's made up of two Greek words, pros, which means toward, kaneo, which means to get, to kiss. So you might have th- thought you were just singing songs to the Lord, but how God received it was we were leaning toward Him to kiss Him. It's a way of expressing 
our deepest appreciation and our love for the Lord. And so that's what worship is, and worship is the means that God has given to us to express our heart, our affection, our love toward Him uh, in that way. I want us to notice some marks of David's worship there. He said, O God, You are my God. And there's just this great sense of privilege in David's life that the God of the Bible is his God. The Bible teaches that everyone is a worshiper. Everyone has a God. just a matter of, of whether that God is worthy of our worship. Everyone has a master passion in their life. The thing that we get out of bed for in the morning and we wake up and we move forward in life and we try to achieve and to attain and all. We all have a master passion. And for David... God was that master passion. And he never, ever lost, no matter how long he walked with the Lord. He walked with the Lord a long time at this point. And he's more in awe of the fact, I can't believe that I have you to worship and that you are my God. That's a wonderful thing. And sometimes it is only when we lose everything in life that we appreciate how rich we are, and how blessed we are in God. David, in one day, he loses everything. His family betrays him. He loses the throne of Israel. He loses all of that power, all of that wealth. I mean, all of this is gone in an instant, and you would think that he just would kind of collapse in a heap and give up on life itself, but he doesn't do that. And you know why he doesn't do that? Because no one could take away from David the thing that was the most important to David in all of life, and that was his relationship with God and the privilege of knowing this God and worshiping this God. No circumstance in life, no betrayal, no sin, no hardship ever separates us from our relationship with God. And sometimes when we lose all of these other things... It makes us even more thankful for the God who will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He'll always be faithful to this relationship. When everyone else is gone, He will always be there. And it makes us love Him all the more. And so the privilege of having this God, the God of the Bible, be the God that we know and we love And we worship. And then, of course, for us as Christians, we're able to look back on what the psalmist could just see through a glass darkly, and that is Calvary. To look back on the cross of Jesus Christ and the price that was paid there as an expression of God's love in order to save us. To think, Lord, I'm amazed that I get to know you and I get to worship you and have a relationship with a God like that. David said also in verse 1, early will I seek you. And so that word early speaks of the first part of a day, the morning given over to prayer, over to worship in song to the Lord, and also the reading of God's Word. It's, also, it's interesting to realize that not all worship is verbal, though that's what we're going to talk about here tonight. Sometimes when we go from singing, worshiping the Lord in song and we'll go to the study of the Word, sometimes 
Uh, I feel directed to pray, Lord, now as we continue our worship of you and the study of the of your word, bless us in this. We have a spirit of worship that goes on as we turn to the word of God. And and so this this worship is uh, takes on a lot of different characteristics. And David spoke about giving God the best part of the day, the first fruit uh, of the day. I've mentioned it before, especially when I'm asked to do announcements concerning the daily breads when they've come in. And that devotional life, that quiet time with the Lord uh, in the morning to begin the day, and uh, I'm prone to say that God will never stop in our lives until that becomes the sweetest part of our life. He will never stop until that's the thing that we hold to be the most precious thing in our life, more necessary for life than even our daily physical bread. And the Lord is faithful to do that. And if you haven't reached that place in your walk with the Lord, know that God is going to get you there. Cooperate with Him and get there. Until, I'll tell you, you get to a place where it's like anything can happen or not happen in a given day, but the one thing I can't head into the day without is that time spent with Him. Christianity is a relationship. And to begin that relationship, to begin that conversation with God early in the day. And so this tells us that worship was of God was the highest priority in David's life. Well, what really fights against that, meeting with the Lord early? But don't, nobody shout out. I'm just asking a question. What's the biggest thing that we face in this culture, the biggest um, com- competitor to a daily quiet time? Time pressure, busyness. But you think about David as the king of Israel. I mean, how busy is a king? I mean, that's a busy person, especially when you're handling the job the way that David handled the position. And yet, despite all of the, the pressure, time pressure that he was under, he, he gave the best part of the day uh, to the Lord, and, the, and he would have never been successful in the way that he was as a king without that. And, of course, neither can we. We notice also in verse 1 a, a thirst for God in David's life. His entire being, he says, thirsted and it longed for God. The same way that a person experiences a physical thirst and like the Judean wilderness, you're out in this dry place and there's no water And sometimes we can go a long time before we find ourselves in that place where we drank our last bottle of water. It was a long time ago, and there's no water in sight. And there's that uh, kind of gripping, uh, dominating uh, thirst that is in our in our mind as, as a result. And so uh, David is in that kind of a, uh, of a place where you've got that physical thirst that goes on in life, and he's speaking about uh, the fact that the world is a very, very spiritually dry place, and it created a spiritual thirst in David that David knew only God could meet. I tell you, this world is a spiritual wilderness. There's, in, uh, apart from God, there is no uh, refreshment spiritually. You can go all over the whole wide world. You can go to the wonders of the world, the greatest cities of the world, the most scenic um, uh, sites that are in the world and countrysides and these kind of things. And apart from God, they're just empty and they're meaningless. 
The world is a spiritual desert, spiritually, spiritually dry, and it's amazing how spiritually empty the world can leave us. It can be fun. It can be interesting. It can uh, be all of those things, but in and of itself, uh, it is absolutely empty of meaning apart from God. I can't tell you how many places I've been in life Greatest, I mean it, everywhere from Disneyland, and I don't want to ruin Disneyland for you. But I've had the privilege of, of just, God has been, just been a part of His will to see some amazing places all around the world. And I look at them, and it's amazing to see, and it's fabulous what man has built or what God has created and all of those things. And then as I'm in the middle of all of it, I just realize, God, apart from you, none of this means anything. It's all just vanity and vexation of spirit. And I just say, Lord, I'm so glad that I know you because without that, nothing would have any meaning or any refreshment at all. And so David, he recognized that this world, the best that it can offer is a spiritual wilderness, and only God can meet that spiritual thirst in our lives. We notice also in verse 2 that David loved the sanctuary because it was all about God and His power and His glory. I think it's good for us to remember as Christians that churches are supposed to be about God. You say, dear pastor, you have such a gift for the obvious. What can I say? But there's a little bit of a move away from that. Sometimes there's always a temptation to move away from that, to move from the star attraction of a church to be God and the worship of Him, that every focus of every person that comes in is lifted up and put upon Him. And so it's good to be reminded that church is supposed to be supremely about God. Our worship is to be God-centered. It's not to be man-centered. You notice there in verse 2, 4, So I have looked for you. He didn't go to church or the sanctuary to be wowed by the preacher, to be wowed by the worship team. He went there to meet with God. And the preacher and the worship team is important, but only as, as uh, they point people to God. And he went to see, he said, to see your power and to see your glory. And so that's what he was looking for. Here he is. He's in this spiritual wilderness called the world. And when he went into church, he didn't want to see more of the world. He didn't want to see the same old thing out there six days a week and then come in and see it's all the same thing in this place too. What kind of refreshment would that be? And so he was uh, appreciated the fact and it was important to him that God be the focus of the worship uh, service. And so that's what it's supposed to be. Church is supposed to be a place where we come and we learn of God's power and of His glory and of His greatness. And David's out in that Judean wilderness and he thinks about the sanctuary and that's what he thinks about. He thinks about a chance, an opportunity to once again meet with God and be pointed to God in that powerful kind of way. And David expected that God would be the center of attention and not man in that sanctuary I said it once in a while in the past, but everything I say I've already said just about. 
And, uh, but the degree to which uh, man is the center of attention in a church is the degree to which God is being ignored. And I think it's a sad thing, and I don't know how to rectify it except to make all of us aware of it, but how this pressure that is, is on, I think, churches in the United States for sure, the pressure that is on to make it about people rather than about God. So that sermon, the pastor goes in and he starts that sermon, and his supreme focus is on the people rather than God. So he writes that supremely. Now, you're going to think about people because you want to meet their needs and you love them and you want to bless them. But it's not about what do they want to hear or what will please them or those kind of things. If you begin there or you put the worship set together that way, where all I'm going to do is reinforce I, me, my selfishness in people to nurture a body like this, where people come to think that church is just like the world, it's all about I, me, and my, and then pretty soon the Spirit of God heads out over the Mount of Olives and leaves, and it becomes Ichabod. And, and there's nothing of the Spirit left. And so David wanted church to be about God, about His power, and about His glory. And that's a good thing to be reminded. I don't know as the days go on, as the Lord's uh, you know, time approaches, maybe we'll see a great revival before the Lord comes back. Or maybe it'll be a thing where... Uh, the Church of Philadelphia gets kind of smaller and smaller and smaller. The group of people that understand that all of this is about God and about blessing God and giving to God and honoring God. And yes, there will be blessings back to us because you can never outgive God. But we don't worship Him and praise Him and honor Him and gather for it to become kind of a mutual admiration society. It's all about the Lord. And I think that's important for us uh, to recognize. Sometimes a person can kind of fall into the idea where they're maybe leaving church and somebody said, well, how was it? Oh, I don't know. How was the worship? Oh, it was good. Or they'll say, it was good. So why, why was it good? Oh, I loved all of those songs. And I mean, what I felt and what I, and it really made me feel good and I'm ready and all. And so it's judged a success on the basis of what it did in me. Or somebody says, how was... Well, you know, the worship was kind of dead. I didn't like any of the songs that they did, and, and I just couldn't really relate to it. So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't uh, not so good that, uh, this morning. Yeah, but do you, just, do you suppose God liked them? you suppose He wanted to hear those things from our lips today? I think it's important, too, as the worship team leads us in worship, that... And as those worship songs are prayed for during the week, I mean, Mike and I get together and we just choreograph the whole thing. Or Samuel say, all right, I'm going to do this. And then at this part of the sermon, I'm going to do this. And then I think if you have a song about that, then maybe then here and all. Mike and I and Samuel and I, we don't even talk during the week. I'll try to listen to God and put together what comes next. You try to listen to God and give us the worship and song thing that you believe that God wants to hear from us and that we have a need to sing to God, and then we'll just see how it turns out during the service. 
And so that's, that's how the whole thing works. And the idea is when, when they put that song list together and they sing it, to realize sometimes, wow, I wonder if this isn't something that may not be, you know, kind of the most exciting thing to me, but this is what God is wanting to hear from me right now. Or sometimes you'll say, you'll, a song set comes together or a number of songs and you sing is that that's exactly what I needed to sing to God. That's the supernatural side of the whole thing. But the, I, I like that verse in Psalm, in the, rather in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, and it says, Therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. And I like that phrase, the sacrifice of praise. No matter what song we're being led in, in this church or anywhere that we might be, we can, we can lift that praise up to the Lord no matter what we feel about that song. I don't love every song that I hear sung in church. Not every song we sing here knocks me out. But I know that not everybody is like me. So there's lots of personalities. There's lots of relationships with God. And so if it honors the Lord, it points us to God, it says something important, then it gets through the grid and we use it here. But I always want to, in any song, no matter how many times I've sung it or whatever it might be, is to say, Lord, I'm going to sing this to you. I'm certainly not this side of heaven going to sit silently in a place like this. I'm going to offer you the sacrifice of praise because it does something good for your heart. I'm going to offer it to you. Now, notice that in verse 3, that his worship was a response to what God had been and done for him. He says there in verse 3, he said, because, that's a, that's a reason word, because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. And so this, the worship is, it's just, a, it's just something that you do in the light of all that God has done for us, is to respond to that in worship to him. And so he's been so good to us, as David says, his loving kindness. He's been such a blessing to us, so faithful to us. And that's why David praised the Lord. And when he declares that God's loving kindness is better than life, he's saying that while life is certainly dear to him, God was even uh, dearer to him, that he praised his relationship with God more than life. In verse 4, he says, thus I will bless you while I live. And that he, he viewed that as the purpose of his life, was to bless the Lord. That was the reason that he lived, is just to bless the Lord. And in verses 4 and 5, he's, uh, he t- speaks to us about uh, a couple of characteristics related to worship, one having to do with the raising of hands and the other having to do, verse 4, and then in verse 5 he speaks of joyful lips. And it's a great thing to, I think, to be open to the Lord, the prompting of the Holy Spirit, uh, to raising hands to the Lord. I mean, about 30 years ago, very few people raised their hands to the Lord except in uh, Pentecostal churches. And now, of course, it's a much more common thing. And, so, and I remember when I was a new Christian, I came into church, you know, and I sat down and here are these people raising their hands and they're sitting right next to me. So I'm like... 
I got one eye closed here for God, and then I'm watching the guy right over here. What's he going to do next? Is he going to take out like a rubber mallet and hit me or what? Because I didn't understand anything about that. It was weird. So here I'm just their old cable splicer come into this relatively new environment, worship-wise, and I'm seeing this thing and I don't understand it. And then pretty soon over time I began to understand what was going on and I understand why people raise their hands as we should raise our hands. You've got to get your antennas up if you expect to hear anything from God. You think you're going to hear from God tonight? You've got your antennas on your lap. You get those hands up there. Now, it doesn't work like that. But I understand the worship leader's frustration sometimes when they resort to that. Here's how it works. You're worshiping the Lord, and it's coming out of your mouth, and you feel like what is in my heart toward Him can't be expressed in words alone. I want to lift my hands up to Him. And the lifting of hands, of course, the universal symbol of surrender. But it's when the Holy Spirit just touches our heart and speaks to our inner man and says, I want you to sing that song, but I want you to raise your hands too. And if the conversation would be so quick and the prompting so quick, and especially after you'd you know, kind of been there for a little while and the hands just go up. You, I mean, it comes to a point, I'm not saying everybody needs to be like this, but they would, a person would almost have to tie your hands down not to raise them in speaking certain things to God in praise and to worship. And the same thing with standing. It's just the prompting and the leading of the Holy Spirit. But just to know that that's normal. That's a normal expression of worship. And he talks about singing to the Lord with joyful lips. And I always like this when that's mentioned in the Psalms. You know what the most important thing about our singing is? Our voices, how good our voices are. Listen, I wasn't always the accomplished singer I am today. I remember as a new Christian, again, coming in this environment, the only place I ever sang was in the shower. And even then, not in front of my wife. So it was a very private kind of experience because I can't hold the tune. I can't do it. Now, after 30 years of worshiping, you can kind of get close to it a little bit where you're not a distraction in the room as you're worshiping the Lord. The Lord doesn't care about the voice. He cares about the joy. He cares about the heart that's being expressed. And that's important for us to know about worship. That's what blesses him. He loves to hear our praise. And then I notice also in verse 6 that worship isn't limited to the sanctuary. He talks about the fact that when I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. And so what happens in the sanctuary, and this is good to realize, can happen anywhere in life. I can worship the Lord anywhere, while I'm driving in the car, before I go to bed, in the middle of the night. I can worse take one of these songs that God brings to my remembrance, and I can begin to sing it to Him and absolutely butcher it. If I, when I begin a song singing it to the Lord, my memory is so bad related to these songs that I end up 
combining six worship songs together and feel like I sang just one. But he sifts through all of it and it blesses him. And so this can happen anywhere in life, not just in the sanctuary. And that's why it's good to sometimes know, hey, buy a good music CD or download music under the iPod. Put it on at home. Put it on uh, while you're, you're doing something that's kind of mindless or whatever and, and have that whole experience going on. Anytime, the middle of the night, the morning, anytime is a good time to worship the Lord and anywhere is a good place to worship the Lord. And I notice in verses 7 and 8 that worship is important to staying uh, close in our walk uh, with the Lord. My soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. This is important. When we find ourselves in a super deep trial, make sure that you get around Worship being offered to the Lord. Never skip church. Not just related to the teaching, but the worship experience. Make sure that you tune into a radio station or something that is playing praise music, K-Love or whatever it might be. Or put on music of uh, yourself related to it, of, of your own resources like we've just talked about. The importance of worshiping the Lord in times of seasons of difficulty. And and in times of trial, sometimes we get into a trial, we start to chop all these things off, and then our worship begins to weaken toward the Lord, and then somehow God reintroduces it back into our lives, and we realize, wow, how much I need to be worshiping you to maintain perspective in the middle uh, of this trial. When it talks about there in um, Verse 8, my soul follows close. That word follows, two words follows close in the Hebrew. Uh, it's a single word and it means clings to. And so his soul was glued to God. That's how close David stayed to God in this trial and worship was a part of that. I like this, your right hand upholds me. When you hold the when two people are holding hands, which person is doing the upholding? the stronger hand. God upholds us through our trials. And sometimes we lose sight of that until worship is reintroduced into our life. Sometimes we're in a great trial. God's got a hold of our right hand. He's holding us. It's not like we've got a firm grip on Him. He's got a firm grip on us. He's got us by the right hand. We're going to cross the street, downtown Manhattan. We're in the middle of the trial. God, where are you? Where are you? Can you see me? You know anything about what I'm going through right now? He's holding our hand in the middle of the trial. That's how close he is. But it takes worship to remind us of that and to maintain that perspective. And then I like it in verses 9 through 11 that worship brings perspective in the midst of the uncertainty and craziness of life. David's life is just crashing right before his very eyes. I mean, everything is falling apart. But as he sets his focus on the Lord and worships him, his eyes are taken above the circumstance. And then David, as a result, as a result of worship, he, met, he re- regains perspective in the situation and... and uh, uh, 
uh, and his eyes, uh, his, his whole heart is filled with great hope and with great confidence. And so this beautiful, beautiful psalm on the worship of the Lord. And I don't think that we can hear that enough as Christians. And we don't talk about it, I don't, very often. Well, we're in the Psalms, so we do a little bit more than usual. So it's nice to just let those truths settle in uh, once again uh, in our hearts, to be reminded of the importance of worship to God and then also to ourselves. Psalm 64 is a psalm that provides us with an answer to fear. So it's a great psalm to turn to when we find ourselves gripped uh, by fear. Hear my voice, O God, in my meditation. Preserve my life from the enemy. doesn't say that. Some psalms say that. But it says, preserve my life from fear of the enemy. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the rebellion of the workers of iniquity. And so when I find myself in life gripped by fear, and there's a lot to fear in life, but when we, as a, as a Christian, when we find ourselves gripped by fear, it's because I am seeing God in the light of my circumstances. They seem, that my circumstances and my trial seems very, very big, and God seems very, very small. The solution to that is always prayer or praise to the Lord, because as David begins to pray to the Lord here, ultimately he begins to see his circumstances in the light of God, in the light of God's power, and the light of God's resources. And so the psalm follows a very, very um, a common pattern in the book of Psalms, and that is a person is in a great difficulty for him. It is being gripped by fear related to his enemies. See, God, God can... Uh, whoop all of our enemies. And we can know that He will and still live gripped by fear. So uh, the, the, the fear of our enemies is something a little different than our enemies. And, and, and so the fear has to be dealt with. And so we talk it over like David does. He starts to talk over this whole big mess uh, with the Lord. And as he's talking it over with the Lord, then pretty soon fear gives way to faith and pretty soon he's got great confidence concerning the future and his heart is filled with peace. And so when we're gripped by fear in our lives, and there's no doubt there's uh, probably quite a number of us, given some circumstance in our life where your life is dominated by fear right now. And the great need is to sit down, spend time in prayer with the Lord until you are seeing that circumstance in the light of his power in the light of his resources. You say, how long does that take? 90 seconds. And you're no kind of a Christian if it takes you longer than that to have your fear be changed into peace. I'm being facetious, of course. There is no time. That's why sometimes people say, well, give me a time. How long is the dev my devotional time supposed to be? Is it 10 minutes? Is it 20 minutes? Is it an hour? Is it four hours? What is that? And nobody's going to give you any kind of a time. My devotional time, as it relates to fear, needs to be, and my prayer time needs to be as long as is necessary for me to walk away from that chair and see my life circumstance in the light 
of God's power and His resources and filled with peace. And if that happens in five minutes, that's great. If that takes 35 minutes, then that's how long that it takes. But the reward is we leave with this confidence that God wants uh, us to have and peace having reclaimed our hearts. And so he talks about his enemies. This is how he begins the psalm. They sharpen their tongue like a sword. That's a terrible tongue, isn't it? A tongue that's used as a weapon. They bend their bows to shoot their arrows, bitter words that they may shoot in secret at the blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him and they do not fear. And they encourage themselves in an evil manner, uh, matter, and they talk of laying snares secretly. They say, uh, who will see them? And they devise iniquities. They have perfected a shrewd scheme. God, you see what they're doing to me? I mean, it's like they have concocted the perfect crime. What is the perfect crime? It's the crime you can commit and get away with. He says, Lord, I mean, they are so shrewd in their schemes against me that this looks like something they're going to get away with. Both the inward thought and the heart of man are deep. In other words, given over these wicked men to this kind of thing. But the longer he prays and he's talking it over the Lord, spilling the problem out to the Lord, and then pretty soon there's that turn that occurs, and now he begins to see the circumstance and the light of God. But God, that's quite a hinge that the psalm turns on. Now he starts to see them and the light of God. But God shall shoot at them with an arrow. And I hear he's very good. Suddenly they shall be wounded. And so he shall make them stumble over their own tongue. That's quite a tongue. And all who see them shall flee away, and all men shall fear, and shall declare the work of God, for they shall uh, wisely consider his doing. The righteous shall be glad in the Lord and trust in him, and all the upright in heart shall glory. And so... This beautiful psalm and God, uh, David asks God to work in defeating these enemies in such a way that it would be a lesson to the whole world uh, that uh, uh, producing fear in the wicked and then also producing joy and hope and confidence uh, in the righteous. It's important for us to realize that God is at work in the world and he is at work in the world on our behalf, whether we notice it or we don't. That's going on. Prayer helps us to get quiet enough before God to then see what it is that He is doing. And so that happens. I think that uh, sometimes with all the wickedness that's going on in life, all that we can see is what the wicked are doing, and we don't realize that God is at work uh, also. The great verse related to this is Psalm 7, verse 11. God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. Always believe it. The wicked have a miserable life. You know why? Because God makes sure that they do because of their, their wickedness. And that kind of a perspective and that understanding of God delivers us from a life of fear uh, of our enemies. Psalm 65 is a psalm of praise for the harvest. 
So we're talking about an agrarian society when they would bring in the harvest. Wow, that was fabulous. Now, we live in an agricultural area, don't we? So a lot of, uh, of uh, many of us, of you in this room, uh, the harvest uh, represents, I mean, here is uh, all this work has gone in, and then now here are the blessings and here are the rewards of it. In other words, the harvest is payday. But not everybody works in, in agriculture. So this is a psalm of praise, not only for the harvest, but we could say uh, a psalm of praise uh, for payday. And so he begins by praising the Lord. Lord, praise is awaiting you, O God in Zion. And to you the vow shall be performed. And you uh, who hear prayer... To, all, to you, all flesh will come. And he begins the psalm by praising the Lord before he ever gets to the physical blessings. He praises the Lord for all of God's spiritual blessings in his life. And it just tells us that he understands that the priorities are right. What's a, what good is a big paycheck, a big chunk of money, if I don't have the spiritual character in my life to do something good with it. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm just going to fritter all of it away. So he realized, God, here you're blessing me with all of these blessings in life. Number one, I wouldn't even recognize they came from you except for the fact that they came from you. And number two, I would simply throw all of it away if... if if I didn't have the godly character to recognize that it did come from you and the godly character that you've built in my life. And so the first thing that he gives the Lord praise for in terms of blessings before he ever gets to the harvest is he gives Lord thanks for being a God who hears prayer. Notice that verse 2. Oh, you who hear prayer. Somebody ought to write a song about that. That's a great title for God. You who hear prayer. To you all flesh will come. Iniquities prevail against me, and as for our transgressions, you will provide atonement for them. And so he praises the Lord for God's grace and for his forgiveness. He said, Blessed is the man you choose and cause to approach you, that he may dwell in your courts. He shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, of your holy temple. And so he praises the Lord for the privilege of relationship with God with fellowship with God. And then he praises the Lord in verses 5 through 8 for God's power and his greatness. By awesome deeds and righteousness, you will answer us. O God of our salvation, you who are the confidence of all the ends of the earth and of the far-off seas, who established the mountains by his strength, being clothed with power, you who still the noise of the seas and the noise of of their waves. And so he just praises God as the creator and as the uh, designer and maintainer of his creation. And then it's just as easy, it, 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 as easy it is for God to calm a sea, it's just as easy for him to calm the tumult of the fury uh, of the peoples of the world. And the tumult of the peoples, they also who dwell in the furthest parts of the world are afraid of your signs. You make the outgoing of uh, make the outgoings of the morning and the evening rejoice. And so he speaks of God's providence that God is ruling and overruling in the affairs of men. Everywhere the sun rises and sets, 
all around the world. So we watch the news and we see all these crazy things that are happening in all of the world and we see just like we see it all about a half inch deep based on whatever channel we're watching or whatever news source on the internet that it might be. But when we pull back and look under the surface, look at it in the light of prophecy and we see, God, I see your fingerprints. This thing is marching right where you said that it would be. All of the players are all in place. They're all rattling their sabers. The whole thing is happening uh, just the way that you said. And so he gave praise to the Lord for his power and his greatness. And then here he comes now finally in verse 9 to thanking the Lord for providing uh, what was necessary for the harvest. You visit the earth and water it. He didn't say it was our tractors or or our ingenuity or our hard work. All of those things are important. But who gave the dirt? And who gave the rain? And who gives the snowpack? that the state of California then sells to us that God gave in order to... Enough about it. Listen, it doesn't bother me at all. I hardly notice it. He said, you visit the earth and water it, not Mother Nature. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its ridges abundantly. I mean, I feel like I'm walking through a bean field or something as you read this. It's so graphic. You settle its furrows. You make it soft with showers. You bless its growth. You crown the year with your goodness and your paths drip with abundance. They drop on the pastures of the wilderness and, uh, and the little hills rejoice on every side. And so he thanks the Lord for the crops that were being brought in. And then he thanks the Lord for the flocks and for the herds. The pastures are clothed with flocks. The valleys are also covered with grain. They shout for joy. They also sing. And so all of nature sings, he says, at the time of harvest as we see that all of, this, all of these things happen as a result of God's blessing. He's provided the world. He's provided the earth. He's provided the water, the cycles of nature, all of this. And so this beautiful psalm of thanksgiving uh, directed uh, to uh, the Lord and that recognition that all of the blessings uh, come uh, from him. And I'll tell you that it, it, some of these psalms that we're going to be getting into now, they're psalms, beautiful psalms of thanksgiving directed to the Lord. I, I don't know. There, there, I'm sure there are equals to it, but there's hardly anything more attractive in a human life than thankfulness. An unthankful ingrate is just the, one of the hardest kind of people to be around. The same thing for God. When we are thankful toward Him, it has such an attractiveness about our lives toward Him, and He's worth it. You know, one of the, and He's worthy of it. One of the great things about a, for a thankful person is that they get to enjoy their blessings twice. It's one of the byproducts of it. They get to enjoy the blessing when the blessing occurs, and then when they give thanks to God for it, recognizing that. Everything has come from the Lord. They get to enjoy the blessing all over again. So thankfulness is its own reward. And then we come to Psalm 
66. And he, the psalmist writes uh, here in this, uh, again, praise to the Lord for the greatness of his works. He says, make a joyful shout to the Lord, all the earth. I don't know when's the last time you made a joyful shout to the Lord. Oh, you'll have a chance here before the service is over. Sing out the glory of his name. Speaking of, uh, sing out the honor of his name. Speaking of his nature. Give him praise for what he's like. Make his praise glorious. Why should we make his praise glorious? Because he's glorious. Say to God, and so here's this exhortation to us to worship the Lord with a heartfelt enthusiasm. And, and he tells us to make that joyful shout, to sing out, to make his praise glorious. And then he kind of gives us an example of what it looks like. Say to God, I like, I like a guy that makes it basic for me. Okay, here it is, worship 101. This is what it will sound like. How awesome are your works through the greatness of your power. Your enemies shall submit to you, and all the earth shall worship you and sing praises to you. They shall sing praises to your name. And so this worship being directed unto the Lord for his works, for his greatness and his power. And he talks about all of the enemies of God, one of being submitted to the Lord, all of the earth uh, worshiping the Lord. That was the desire of his heart, was that everyone would worship the Lord the way that uh, the psalmist worshiped the Lord. But there's also a far fulfillment of this psalm, and that is that will be fulfilled in the thousand-year reign of Christ. When Jesus reigns for a thousand years on this earth following his second coming, and then the whole world will submit to him, and, and the whole world will sing his praises. Come and see the works of God. He is awesome in His doing toward the sons of men. He turns the sea into dry land. They went through the river on foot, and so he praises the Lord for God's involvement in human history. And he gives example here of the children of Israel crossing the Red Sea on dry land following their exodus out of Egypt. He talks about when they went through the river on foot, the drying up of the Jordan River when they entered into the Promised Land, and, and basically saying that what to the whole nations of the world, what God has done for us as, as God's people, the Jews in the Old Testament, God will do for you. He will save you. He will lead you into the promised land, the land of the fulfillment of His promises in the New Testament. He rules by His power forever. His eyes observe the nations. Do not let the rebellious exalt themselves, Selah. Oh, bless our God, you peoples, and make the voice of His praise be heard who keeps our soul among the living and does not allow our feet to be moved. And so this beautiful worship uh, being directed to the Lord, again, he calls upon the peoples of the world. Listen, you can have the same worship, the same God that we get to worship. You can have your own history of miracles with God that we have. And so this beautiful desire of the psalmist for the whole world to come to know the God of Israel. For you, O God, have tested us. You have refined us as silver is refined. You have brought us into the net. You laid affliction on our backs. You have caused men to ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, but you brought us out to rich fulfillment. So now he starts to deal with a little more recent 
part of Jewish history, which was probably them suffering defeat at the hands of their enemies because of their idolatry and their disobedience. And yet, even in that, he says, he worships the Lord because you, you didn't give up on us. You chastened us. You refined us. But you brought us out into rich fulfillment. When the Lord disciplines us, and he does discipline us, doesn't he? Okay, there's four other people that have been disciplined. God, I pray that you discipline everybody else in the room this week. That we're, He does discipline us, doesn't he? That's because he's our father, so he knows how to do that. He's got me. There's two, there's two little links in the chain he keeps me on. And uh, I go like this, and he gets, I mean, he's got me on a short one, and I really like that. And it's a choke chain, too. So... He keeps me in a, in a good place, in a short place. He disciplines me. But I like the fact when the writer of the book of Hebrews wrote of the discipline, he says, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. There's always an afterward to, uh, to discipline, and it always does something good in our lives. I will go into your house with burnt offerings. I will pay you uh, my vows, which my lips have uttered, and my mouth has spoken when I was in trouble. I will offer you burnt offerings. Offerings of fat animals with the sweet aroma of rams. I will offer bulls and goats. Selah. And then some of you might remember this old, the old worship chorus that came out of verse 16. Come and hear. Oh, no, no, no. That's not how we learned it. Come and listen. How many of you remember? <laughs> God, I'm alone in the room. Anybody come and listen, all ye that fear God, and let me tell you what the Lord has done for me? Okay. I'm older than I thought. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to recompose myself at the moment. Dave, you remember that song. Don't tell me you don't remember that song. Dave, Abby, in the sound booth, don't you ignore me. Don't you ignore me. You don't. That, you're saying that to please me. All right. Well, this verse won't mean half what it means to me, to you. Come and listen, all you that fear God, and I will declare what He has done for my soul. I cried out to Him with my mouth, and He was, ex and he was extolled with my tongue. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear but certainly God has heard me and has attended to my prayer. And so praise to the Lord for answered prayer. Blessed be God who has not turned away my prayer nor his mercy from me. And so this worship directed uh, to the Lord, again, a beautiful psalm of praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. So let's have the worship team come forward and lead us a little bit of worship I hope Mike didn't choose that song, a brand new song. Tom, you remember that song? You don't remember that song. When did you start coming to this church? Because it's got to predate that. With a memory like yours, you would have remembered it. Okay. Okay. All right. They're about to rescue me here. All right.